It's indeed a privilege we've each been given to assemble on this Sunday afternoon and to do that with the heartfelt desire to please and to adore our God in heaven. And of course, as we have sung these songs and haven't the message has been so very powerful and very moving, we've sung about the glory land and we've sung, of course, about we'll glorify the King of Kings. And for the next few moments, we'll take an opportunity to reflect on some of the features of the Word of God. And as you can see in the lesson title, we're going to do questions and answers again as we have done in the past. As you submit questions, those are used as the basis for, for these lessons. In other words, I, I don't pick the subjects. You get to choose them or select them. And as we take a look at these, of course, we're going to look at a few questions tonight. And in fact, there are, there's an additional question which we won't get to tonight, but I'll do that hopefully very, very soon, maybe even next Sunday night, depending, depending on how things work out that way. But we will look at these questions this evening. And this introductory slide is one that basically helps you appreciate the tenor and the idea of what this is all about. There are times, of course, when various matters... Various issues perhaps are raised in your thinking, and as that happens, maybe in the course of a Bible study or a lesson, that particular subject doesn't come up perhaps in such a directed way, and that's when this question and answer, of course, hopes to, to take care of that, that shortcoming. In fact, you may have noticed that uh, mention was made, I guess, a couple of months ago about having a suggestion box made available. And I uh, think that that perhaps is on the order of being nearly completed. And we'll try to get that mounted shortly so that it'll be readily and easily available and accessible. But for tonight, as always, feel free to just directly give me the questions if you have them written out or pass them on to the elders who will give them to me. Tonight, their first question is one that reads as follows. You may well have heard or at least given some thought to a lady, a woman, in terms of having a covering over her in, in terms of prayer or in terms of worship. Well, sometimes though the man, it might be asked, based on that text in the Bible, is it wrong for a man to have his head covered during prayer or in fact during worship? Be turning with me to 1 Corinthians 11. In fact, it is that chapter to which we'll turn our attention because it is that context that brings this question about. In 1 Corinthians 11, I'd like to begin reading in verse 3 of that chapter as the inspired apostle Paul gave some instruction relative to a point like this one. As you're turning to that location, let me perhaps say, you may remember that the Corinthians had written Paul a letter and in that letter, they had asked him a number of questions, and then the first Corinthian epistle, in many cases, was his answer to those questions. When we arrive at chapter 11, they ask questions about a woman wearing a covering in worship, or in fact in prayer. But this question, of course, relates to a man. Beginning in verse 3, it reads as follows, "...but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God." Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman praying or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. Now we'll pause at that point to make observation of this. Let's unpack what we at least have read beginning in verse 3. The head of Christ is God. 
The head of the woman is the man. The head of the man is Christ. That statement of verse 3 directly leads us then to verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered, so that's his physical head, it says dishonors his head. Now remember the head of the man is said to be Christ. And so on that occasion Paul taught that for a man to have his head covered dishonors Christ. Now in the next verse it goes on to say, Every woman praying or prophesying, having her head uncovered, dishonors her head. Now remember, her head's the man. So Paul on that occasion teaches that for a lady, for a woman to have her head uncovered, that is a dishonoring to the man. Now at this point, you and I know that much has been taught and considered relative to, does this then teach that a woman needs to have fully her head covered in worship service? Well, you, as you and I have appreciated that, let me invite you to quickly turn to verse 16 of the same chapter. Let's let Paul assist us here in a dramatic way. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. This discussion touching the covering of the head in regards to the woman, as well as the not covering of the head in regards to the man, was a matter that Paul labeled a custom. It was attached to the culture of that day and time, and in so doing, we can appreciate that there was a degree of wisdom in this. Because in Corinth at that time, if a woman proceeded through society without her head covered, she was immediately perceived to be a prostitute, or at least to be living in a rather rebellious way to the characteristic governance, and she was not submissive to men. Now that's unbecoming of a Christian woman. And therefore Paul taught these women, you need to have your head covered. For that reason, it gives a, a bad name to what you supposedly stand for. But by the same token, the man, you of course need not to have your head covered for that would be a dishonoring of Christ. Now making that application today, we don't live in ancient Corinth and it is not a custom as I look over this audience, there's not a single woman that has her head covered in this way. A hat would not qualify for this. It would have to be a complete covering of the entirety of the head, and a hat won't do it. You would have to wear a complete veil that would entirely cover, leaving only a small manner of visibility. Again, our culture, our custom is not this. A woman can show her submissiveness to her husband without wearing that, Right? Now to turn it to the man. By the same token, given the custom, we would say then it is not a matter to be held and forced upon a man then to conclude that you must not have your head covered. I firmly believe that it would be perfectly right if a man wanted to have his hat on. In terms of prayer, there wouldn't be anything wrong with that in terms of this passage. But I would at least ask that we all consider this at the bottom of that slide. Although from a formal standpoint, you couldn't scripturally argue, it seems to me, that such would be wrong. There is something to be said about respect. Isn't it true that we're very well aware? For instance, when the Star Spangled Banner plays, every man takes the hat off his head. Because in that way, he honors this nation. He honors the principles on which it's founded. And he pays honor to the character of that for which it stands. By the same token, when a funeral procession goes by, 
Typically, a man, first thing, will remove a hat if it's on his head because it is an honoring of the life that has been lived. I would at least offer this, even though it may not be scripturally something to which we can point. It would seem to me a bit unwise for a man to have a hat on during worship or during prayer simply in respect to the one to whom we're worshiping and the one that we're honoring. We're honoring Christ. We're honoring God. And if I remove my hat for the star-spangled banner, how much greater is He? My conclusion at the bottom then would be that I don't believe it would be in keeping with the attribute of respect for the one that we're worshiping to so blatantly maintain the characteristic of wearing something that at least in our culture carries the thought of an attribute of disrespect. That particular question, again, drawn from this context of 1 Corinthians 11, leads us to another question. What else might we be able to say in terms of answering questions? Here's this one. Maybe you've wondered about this. Can a woman baptize somebody? Well, as you ponder, or at least the discussion or the thought about that question, may we first of all keep in mind that baptism is an exceedingly prominent matter, of course, in the Bible. And you and I realize it is the culminating act in that initial obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't it true that with regard to baptism, we appreciate the prerequisite need to believe in Jesus, to repent of sins, to make a verbal confession of the reality of one's faith. And then in light of the examples in the book of Acts, we find those individuals then immersed into Christ in that act that, that the Bible calls baptism. As you notice, though, the question is this. We realize that a person cannot baptize himself. Someone else has to be involved in this. May a woman do that? Well, let's see if we can develop some of these appreciations, some of these thoughts about perhaps the issue of this. First of all, as you and I give thought to the book of Acts, as well as the other books of the New Testament, some of those initial thoughts are clearly before us. Baptism is that act in which we contact the blood of Christ. It is that act when in fact it's commanded by Christ. And in so doing, we're able to, of course, be baptized into the church. That text of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, in fact, reads it that very way. All of that leads us to note this. Baptism is a matter of faith, and may we be quick to say this, the validity of a baptism does not depend on the person doing the baptizing. By that I mean this. If a person honestly submits to the gospel and is baptized, then that baptism is right and it is in keeping with the things of God. There could be hidden secrets in the life of the one doing the baptizing and so if a person's baptism depended on the godliness of the one doing the baptizing, we would all have another condition on our salvation. Not only would we have to obey the gospel, we'd have to do a background check on the one baptizing us to ensure that he too would meet those qualifications. That isn't found anywhere in the New Testament. Thus, that middle statement I would ask you to note, the validity of a baptism at the very most basic level doesn't depend on the character of the one doing the baptizing. But that does lead us to at least ponder this. You and I know that we look for book and chapter and verse to give us authorization for something. And that next statement on the slide is this. 
There's not a single example in all the New Testament of a woman baptizing somebody. On the day of Pentecost, there was about 3,000 baptized. And you and I, as we read much about that event in Acts chapter 2, there's not the slightest mention that a woman participated by, in fact, being among those doing the baptizing. Two chapters later in Acts chapter 4, the number had grown to 5,000 and not a single mention anywhere that a woman was involved in doing that baptizing. As you continue reading the book of Acts, the same statement, in fact, furthermore is made. Later in Acts 18, when in fact in Corinth there were many that obeyed the gospel one more time, no mention of a woman doing the baptizing. In Acts chapter 16, there it was Lydia and the women who again had gathered at the river one more time, though there was a large group of women, no mention about a woman doing the baptizing. That leads me to at least make the statements at the bottom. First thing we should say, if there were no man available or capable of baptizing, then rather than not be baptized, surely it would seem reasonable to invite a woman to do the baptizing in a case like that. But if there is a man present who is capable, willing to do that baptizing, it seems from a scriptural standpoint, it would be wise to invite the man to do the baptizing. Simply because, again, we have no scriptural precedent, no example anywhere of a woman who had done that. It seems at least that would be the closest in keeping with what biblical evidence, the scriptural evidence that you and I have been given. These two questions tonight so far have touched these particular subjects and they lead us to another question. What about this one? You and I know that in the course of service, the worship service that that we of course direct to God, We do this in a way that we strongly desire to be in truth and in spirit. In fact, the Lord demands that of us in John chapter 4, verse 24. But maybe this question is one that would be fair to cross the mind. We understand that there have been restrictions placed upon what a woman is capable or at least able by authorization from God to do in worship. But what if she is asked to do something which has no speaking part? waiting on the table. Would it be okay for a woman to serve the Lord's Supper as long as it's not in the presiding role? That is to say, not in the role of the one that does any of the speaking. Only one of the individuals who in fact distributes the emblems to the members of the congregation, to those who participate. Would that be allowed? Well, that's a fair question. The particular thoughts on that slide are those which I would invite you to consider. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we encounter the following statements. And while you're turning there, let me say that that particular chapter is one in which Paul was giving instructions to Timothy, who, remember, was laboring in the city of Ephesus. And while there there was some necessary matters about the welfare of not only the worship, but of the church in general. And in this second chapter, perhaps the most familiar part of it begins in verse number 11. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence." And those two verses have been, of course, a subject of some consideration and even some controversy throughout the ages. 
certainly at this point you and I might notice again what's been asked. It is not a speaking role. She is completely silent, never says a word, merely distributes the emblems. Would that be okay? Well, as you and I consider this study, let me offer that also in 1 Corinthians 14, there are some additional statements there. But this passage in 1 Timothy, it seems to me, is the plainer, the more direct of the two. And so we will focus our efforts and our attention on this particular passage. As I read that a moment ago, let's notice some of the language. First of all, verse 11. First of all, let the woman... Now in the Greek, that word really is for a female. Let the woman learn in silence. That word silence... It is not absolute in the sense that she is forbidden in every regard to make any audible sound. If she were, she wouldn't be able to sing. Let's face it, ladies are singing when they are, of course, using and making sounds. The word that's employed here is a word that describes an attribute of quietness and submission, an attribute of humility. And you may notice, in fact, that's the way the verse ends. Let the woman learn in silence. How? With all subjection. She is not to usurp, to take that authority. And as Paul elaborates on it in the next verse, he puts it like this. It says, I suffer not a woman. And that word suffer means to permit or to allow. I permit or I allow not a woman to teach. So the first thing we can say is in any role of teaching over a man... That would be forbidden to her in these public assemblies. Whether it be in the worship service or in the Bible study hours, that would be not permitted to the woman. Did you know the, the language again? Not only did he say to teach, he said to usurp authority over the man. Now that's an extension in some ways. It is one thing to teach, but now notice that she is forbidden from occupying a role in any position by which she will have authority, if you please, in these assemblies over the man. Now that word usurp, in the King James translation at least, is probably a, not a word we use all that often. So you and I might read that and say, so a woman is not permitted to go and literally take or to demand this particular role from the man. No, that's not what he says. She's not allowed to have this role whether he gives it to her or not. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. And so on this slide, could I ask you to note that that word silence that appears in this passage? In other places, it means to be still. It means to rest. It means to be silent. One occasion in the Old Testament, at least, in Joshua 5 verse 8, it had to do with remaining in a place. But at least in that sense, we get the idea of what the thrust of that word actually is. A couple of observations, if I might, then at the bottom of that slide. First of all, the Lord's Supper does not belong to us. It is the Lord's. He instituted it. He has complete right to govern it in every way. And hasn't He done that by asserting not only what emblems are to be used, but even how individually we must partake of it. And that's strong. Aren't we told we must discern His body and go in our mind's eye back to the scene of the cross? For if we do not do that, we take it unworthily 
1 Corinthians 11 tells us, and we in fact drink and eat damnation to ourselves. Again, that's very strong language that the Lord can not only mandate what emblems are to use, but how individually we each must partake of it. But the second observation is also this one. Let's see if we can pull some of these thoughts together and revisit the question I ask. The individuals who serve this, this Lord's Supper, to all who are gathered, not only is the one presiding occupying a respectful role of position, but in fact all of them are. It would be in light of that that it seems the second part of this verse number 12 would at least have a bearing. Though it's not a speaking role, Paul didn't say it had to be. It said not to teach nor to usurp authority over the man. It would seem to me at least in the keeping with a passage like that one and also that 1 Corinthians 14 passage, the conclusion at the bottom should be this. It would not be a wise course of action to invite women, if there are at least any men in the auditorium, any men there in that assembly, Christians if you please, who could serve that, it wouldn't be a wise thing to invite women to do this. I might go ahead and say if there were men there though and they were unwilling to do it, that's a shame on them. It ought to be an honor to serve at the Lord's Supper. It ought to be an honor to be invited to occupy a role of position to do this and to do it in a way that's in keeping with the things that God has revealed. These three questions bring us to a fourth one. This fourth question is a bit lengthier, I confess. But nonetheless, it's a good question as all of them have been. The question reads like this. What about the different dispensations biblically and the various laws that individuals have been under? Who were these laws for? When were they to be kept? And if they're no longer in force, when did they cease to be in force? Again, that's a good question. In terms of being students of the Bible, it would be our desire to have an appreciation so that we know what law certain people were under and what things God expected of them. And clearly, we expect that of ourselves even today. Let's begin that discussion then like this. Without a doubt, God is the great lawgiver. That's one of the attributes of God that sometimes is overlooked. Many think of His love and they think about His mercy, but... May we never forget that He's also one who is interested in law. That began, in fact, in the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam and Eve laws to, to keep. You and I remember a couple of them. Remember, He gave them, you are to dress and keep the garden. They had work to do. Only after that did we read that He said, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree in the midst of the garden thou shalt not eat. From the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17. Notice God presented, He gave very directly laws. At that point, that leads me to note this. As you and I begin then in the book of Genesis, we notice from that initial incident that there was a law that was given to the human family. Quite often we call that law the patriarchal law for this reason. The word patriarch means father. The law was given to the fathers. God spoke to them directly. Recall, He directly spoke to Noah. He directly spoke to Adam. He directly spoke, if you please, to Abraham. All of those gentlemen, those fathers of that day and time, 
God directly gave His law to them. And His demand was that they share it with not only their family members, but with others. That's why that law is called patriarchal. But you'll notice on that slide, there are several instances of that which I just mentioned. Again, in Genesis 6, who is it that boarded the ark? It wasn't just Noah. It was his wife, their three sons, and their three wives. Noah had instilled in his family the appreciation of God in the midst of a culture and a world that had so often given itself to evil, and yet they were reckoned as righteous. Later in Genesis 18, what is it that's there said about Abraham? God said, I know that he will command his children after him. It's a fair thing then to say in this world of patriarchy, this initial law biblically given to the human family was of this type. The patriarchal law. Sometimes the word dispensation is used. Now remember, dispensation just means dispensing. When you and I go to the pharmacist, he or she dispenses medicine to us, that of which, is, of course, is on the prescription. Well, here we appreciate that God dispensed His law to the human family. And at first, it was patriarchal for everybody on earth. Everybody was subject to the same sets of laws. But you'll notice on the next thing, you and I remember that later in the Old Testament, there came to be an appreciation where there was a group of people and they had a different law. Let's fill in some of those details. You'll notice a number. From creation until the giving of that other law was around 2,500 years. So if you like to keep that number in mind, for about 2,500 years, everybody on earth was subject to God by way of the exact same law. That law we call the patriarchal one. But then, at that 2,500-year mark or thereabout, by this point, the various patriarchs had come and gone. Abraham had come and gone. Isaac had been born and died. Jacob was also dead by this point, And so too was Joseph even. God's people, those children of Abraham through Jacob, found themselves in Egyptian captivity. But they cried unto God, and God, of course, delivered them through Moses and through those plagues. As He delivered them from Egypt, He brought them to the mount we call Mount Sinai. And it was on that mount that Moses went up, and God gave to him a different law to give to that people. We call that law the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. And notice again, it was given around 2,500 years after that first one. And this one was not for everybody. Could I again invite you to notice? This law was expressly stated to be for those people gathered at Sinai. So for all the human family that wasn't gathered there, those that were not the children of Abraham through Jacob, this law was never for them. They could neither keep it nor disobey it. They were never under it. That leads me to notice at the bottom. Often you and I then give descriptive names. We consider the Jews and on the other hand the Gentiles. Over the course of time, may I suggest the word Jew really wasn't coined this far back in time. That was not going to come really until the book of Ezra. But at least for right now, 
we can begin to appreciate that these Hebrews at least, those gathered at Sinai, God gave them this new law, this different law, the law of Moses. They were to keep it. The Gentiles, they weren't given this law. Now I would ask you to notice in Romans 2.14, Paul expressed in the New Testament era even made statement that those Gentiles were never under the law of Moses. Never. Gentiles, again, they couldn't keep it or break it. They were never under it. On the next slide, as we develop this more thoroughly, might we note this. Something is rather interestingly said in Jeremiah 31. There, among other Old Testament passages, is a statement that that law of Moses was never intended to be permanent. That is to say, God did not give that law with the anticipation that it would last until the end of time. That law was only going to last for a certain amount of time. And then it would be done away with and replaced, superseded if you will, by a different law yet. Now, you'll notice this third one brings us to another time frame. Remember, we had learned about 2,500 years after creation, God gave the law of Moses only to, the gen only to, to those children of Abraham, to the Hebrews. Now, another 1,500 years later... We now come to the Christian era. The Son of God, Jesus, was born to the Virgin Mary. He lived for roughly 33 years. He died on an old Roman cross. And you and I remember that something dramatic is said in Colossians 2.14, that when the Lord died on the cross, not only were those nails something that nailed Him to it, the text also says that old law was nailed to it. That old law of Moses, it was no longer to be in force. It was not to be a matter that then was to be anticipated to be kept as a matter of law in this Christian era. So in that sense, we've noticed three laws. The patriarchal law at first for everybody. 2,500 years later, God gave a law of Moses. That one was only for, again, the Hebrews, the children of Abraham through Jacob. Then, 1,500 years later, yet another law. We often call the Christian law, the Christian dispensation. As you and I remember from Hebrews chapter 8, this one is perfect. Remember, the Hebrew writer rather overtly said that that old law was not faultless. If it had been, there would never have been a need for another one. But because that law had its failures, it had its faults, it had its shortcomings, God has put in place a better covenant the gospel of Jesus Christ. This law, might you and I then lastly make this observation, who is subject to this Christian law? You and I know the answer to that. You'll notice on this slide, every human being on earth, this one is universal. Look at some of these verses. In Matthew 28, after the Lord had been crucified and resurrected, He said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. In Matthew 28, didn't He say it this way? All power given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even in the end of the world. 
Jesus Himself said, Take this message of the gospel, the Christian dispensation, and preach it to everybody everywhere. It's universal. I might quickly suggest that really the Old Testament had foretold that it would be universal. In passages like Hosea, chapters 1 and 2, three times in that pair of chapters, that little prophet of the Old Testament basically taught this new coming gospel will be for everybody. That leads us then to close this slide. As you think then about the various dispensations, the patriarchal, it was one that held sway for the Gentiles all the way up to the cross. The law of Moses, it started at Mount Sinai, it held sway into the cross for the Hebrews. Today, everybody is subject to God through the gospel. That kind of universality is an amazing thing. I'm reminded about Acts 15, verse number 9, when on that occasion, as Peter was himself answering questions asked of him, he said, the same thing that happened to us is what happened to them. The us referred to the Jews, the them referred to the Gentiles. Paul said God expects the same thing of all of us now. Later in Romans chapter 12, he'd say God has made no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Every one of us today, I suppose, from at least the standpoint of history, would be labeled Gentiles, and yet we have the opportunity to be faithful to God in exactly the same way that anybody from the cross onward has been able to enjoy. It is with that in mind that we close our lesson with a conclusion. We've looked at four questions tonight. Questions have been asked. Questions that have touched the following topics. And one by one, it's been our goal to lift the Scriptures high and to let it do the answering. I hope we each can study on various and sundry things. And as always, if questions cross your mind or heart, just make sure to get those to me. And we will also consider them in due course and certainly in due time. It might be tonight that there's someone in the audience that would be in a position that you'd like to come to the Lord. Maybe you've never become a Christian Maybe you've come to realize as a result of our songs or a studying of the Bible what you're missing and you want to make sure that you don't continue living this way. May I say that that plan of salvation is believe in Jesus with all of your heart, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. If you have taken care of that and you have known the life of faithfulness at least for a while, but tonight that can't be said of you. You lived in a way that's brought reproach upon yourself, upon the church, upon the Lord. You know that He isn't pleased with you in that condition. Won't you come back to your first love? Revelation 2.5 stated to the church in Ephesus that's what they needed to do. Maybe that's what you need to do. If we could pray to God on your behalf with observation of your repentance and confession, we'd be happy to do that. Tonight, if there would be anyone subject to the gospel's call of invitation... What an opportune time this is, and we would encourage you to come even now while together we stand and while we sing.